0: How would you describe yourself more as an overlay person or more as a soft light person?
1: Well, I would say soft light, I guess. I use both of those all the time, but it's funny how as you grow in anything, uh, at least I tend to come out bold and then later start to soften it up a little bit.
0: This is episode number 29 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast, the show in which we talk all about retouching and post-production, but also take a deep dive and look behind the scenes of the image making process. The show is brought to you by our retouching studio boutique retouching.com and learnpostproduction.com if you are a new listener hello and welcome to the show if you like what you're hearing do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcasting app our guest today i probably don't have to mention who this guy is let's welcome joel grimes hello joel and thanks for taking the time and coming on on the podcast and talk about interesting topics on post-production and creative passion i would say as well so hello how are you doing
1: well thank you daniel i'm doing wonderful we're getting ready for a workshop here this weekend so it's a two-day workshop so we're kind of you know getting everything ready so it's kind of fun
0: yeah is it where you are living currently
1: yeah in phoenix we're outside of phoenix arizona so we're in the desert and normally it's Pretty warm, but uh, in the winters it does get cold in the desert. But we're just coming off of cold snap, so we're waiting for beautiful golf weather. So
0: just fingers crossed for that. Hope it's going to be amazing time. So have you been to WPPI as
1: well, or? Yes, I was just there. Was it uh, see last week, and then I was off to uh, Denver to speak at an ASMP photography group. So yep, I'm I'm pretty much at every event you can possibly think of.
0: Yeah, it's hard to schedule. As we just discussed, it's like really, really hard for busy people to take the time off and make an interview for a podcast. But yeah, again, thanks for for taking the time. And I assume like everyone who's going to be listening to this podcast is going to know the name Joel Grimes. But nevertheless, can you give us like a really short summary of your career?
1: Well, I started out studying photography in high school. So I was about, oh, let's see. 14 years old when I started, I had no idea what that would lead to and uh, eventually began to take college courses. It was in my first year in college that I had a professor who was very dynamic, and he instilled in, uh, at least in me, that photography was not just a way to document the world around you, but it was a way to be an artist and to be creative and have a voice in the world. So that kind of sparked me on my journey uh, as at least to pursue it full time. Once I got hooked, I couldn't go back and then, but I came out of the fine arts uh, with a fine art degree from the University of Arizona. And I had to learn how to make a living in the real world, which is not easy. So I fumbled a lot in the early days and little by little, I began to, Well, create images that I wanted to hang on my wall, but also clients wanted to hire me for. So I was really in the best of both worlds because I still and have always looked at myself as an artist, hopefully being a creative force. And if a client likes what I do, then uh, there's hopefully a project that I can work on with them. So um, and then, of course, I started on the film days and eventually when digital came along, it kind of. Through a lot of this old school photographers, film photographers for a loop, many of my colleagues uh, did not make it through that time period, but I was determined and I learned an incredible lesson. I kind of had a revelation during that time period, and that is that I am not a photographer, but I am a artist with a set of tools. So for years, I defined myself as an art or as a photographer. But when digital came along, it kind of threw us because we were now using Photoshop. We were doing, well, I started doing composites and people said, that's not a photographer. You can't do that. That's not pure photography. Yeah. And how right they were, right? Well, yeah. And then I thought, well, <laughs> okay, if that's the way you want to define it, then I'll define myself as an artist with a set of tools
0: yeah makes a lot of sense and you definitely have proven them like as you said many have not made it through that period and i want to touch also on the tool set as well so coming from the film days how has your process changed also in terms of when digital came your art was not finished by just the push of a button you had to evolve and encompass more steps in the post production side as well so how has this changed from the film days
1: Well, there's always limitations. No matter what you have in front of you, there's a limitation. And so you have to learn to work within those limitations. So in the film days, if I shot color film or transparency film, that's generally what I shot for clients, I would have to make all the magic happen in the camera. And then you delivered it to the client. Now, in the darkroom, you had some liberty to... Sort of go in and manipulate the the, uh, the black and white print. If you did color printing, you would probably have some freedom there, too. But I did not do color printing. So you really had to get it in the camera. Today, obviously, we have what I would call, you know, sort of a 50-50. I think 50% of it you uh, you do in a camera and 50% of you do it later in, in uh, you know, Photoshop or whatever program you're using. So... It's kind of a split vision. So hopefully, and I think that the the best photographers, they create the base image in camera that is going to be best applied later with the Photoshop techniques that you have. So you still have to think through the process while you're shooting in camera. And then you, I guess you'd call, you finish it in, in Photoshop. So it's still a creative process. Nothing's changed there. It's just the tools have changed. And I would say how much we apply it in camera has changed because we can manipulate it later. But it's still the same process to me. I have an end result that I want to get to. And therefore, I apply all the tools, techniques, the creative uh, juices, whatever uh, inspiration I have to get to that end result.
0: Oh yeah makes sense and also um what you just mentioned is to potentially shoot in a way that post-production is not there to just fix issues in your photography exactly yeah i think it still happens so me as a retoucher i still get jobs where things have to be fixed instead of just finished and made more beautiful but i always tend to say in images could potentially be so much better if we could skip the steps of fixing things in the image that could have been taken care of before or were not shot in a way that deserves post-production.
1: Yeah. Again, don't be sloppy on either end. So you don't be lazy and sloppy when you take pictures and then expect to have someone fix it later. So the, the most important thing is, you have an end result and you wanna get there as clean and as fast and as efficient and as whatever, you know, if you have a budget, whatever it is, you gotta get there and you never lose sight of the end result.
0: But speaking about this transition area, when you when you switched over to digital, how did you first discover Photoshop? Was it a thing right from the start? Because like it is rare to have people on the podcast who made it through this transition. So maybe you can explain a little bit yeah how that went for you and how you eventually discovered these digital tools for your process as well
1: well so um i was scanning my transparencies my negatives before digital capture and then i was manipulating them in photoshop so really it was photoshop first and then the digital capture later so it wasn't that I went straight from digital capture and said, oh, I have to learn Photoshop to manipulate my images. I was already doing that with scanned, you know, digital files from my film. So that part of it was pretty seamless. The challenge, though, is that I'm colorblind. So I always looked at the post-processing or Photoshop as something that I really probably couldn't do very well, meaning that I could, you know, adjust levels. I could take out uh, you know, a piece of trash in the in in the background that I forgot to remove, or you know i could I could do some manipulation, but when it came to actually finishing off an image, I thought because I could never print color in a dark room. That was out of the question because I'm colorblind. I don't see green at all. Uh, I have other colors that I don't see very well either, but green is my worst. and so I was very nervous about actually finishing an image in Photoshop, and so. I kind of was nervous and scared that, you know, the transition of digital might force me to, um, I don't know, not abandon photography, but have to hire someone to do my retouching. As you said, you're colorblind. And things get really
0: sophisticated with color in Photoshop. Even I think nowadays, even more, um, um, the expectations are a little bit higher than maybe like 15 years ago. In terms of the outcome, also like camera technology has gotten better, uh, color transitions
1: and stuff. So how did you get around that for yourself? Well, actually, it was an amazing process because when I made that transition... Uh, to digital and began to start to manipulate my images when I said I looked at myself first and foremost as an artist with a set of tools. And I had already done this prior in film days. But what I did was I created a look that fit me within my uh, limitations and boundaries. And I wanted to do all my own retouching because I felt like that was the fulfillment of an artist as someone that could Take a picture and do the retouching. So what I did was, if you look at my images, they are not by any means um, what we would call neutral color balanced skin tones, all that. It's a fantasy, uh, sort of like a half reality, half fantasy world that I create portraits in. And I've forced the techniques to create this kind of grungy, uh, desaturated look And because I'm colorblind, I can work within that, those boundaries and create images. And then I put them out there and people probably think that I'm specifically changing the tones with an eye that is critical to color where I'm just letting it all go. And when it ends up at a certain end result, I say, this is it. This is my, this is my image. And then I post it, and it is what it is. I put it on my website. And so I've gotten away from having to create a body of work that has to be perfectly color balanced. So in a way, it actually, this sounds kind of weird, but because I'm colorblind, it actually has been to my benefit. Because it separates me from other photographers who are trying to create images that we would say fit more of a real a realistic uh, color palette so i'm not doing that i'm desaturating i'm i'm doing i'm changing the skin the skin uh, values in in photoshop to get that grungy kind of you know dramatic look and so i can get away with it because the look has become my brand so in the end if you're trying to have a you have a ferrari and that ferrari has to be perfectly uh the red ferrari color palette that's probably harder than if i just photograph a ferrari and say i'm just going to go and apply my treatments and what i what you get is what you get so in the end it actually is to my benefit that i don't have to create images that are perfectly color balanced yeah i
0: think also is like you speak of limitations i tend to think of it as well as if you're confronted with an issue, is to problem solve and to make things work for you. And I also, in terms of or color blindness or color in general, how we perceive color. I so I'm also training a lot of retouchers and how people perceive color and tones, even when you're not color blind. It's completely different from person to person and people just see things differently. Mm-hmm. And as you said, for yourself, you had had to establish a workflow that makes you come up with an end result that was more artistic and I tend to like explain in terms of monitor calibration and stuff like this so there are um, you always hear monitors should be calibrated to this or to this white point, and I tend to explain to people that if you're just using one device one monitor your eyes and your brain will adapt to that so in terms of you being colorblind I think your brain also over the years has learned what works and what doesn't. So you can work within the limitation of not seeing all the colors.
1: Yeah, it's almost magical in a way, because how is it possible for someone who doesn't see green or red is really hard for me to see? I can see a little bit of red, but not like most people. So I can't create or see the difference between purple and pink or even blue, like like a yellow. I can see yellow, but if you mix green into yellow, I don't see it at all. But here's a really interesting observation that I, I'm not sure I understand, but I'm sure there's a scientific uh, explanation for it. I don't see green, but if I go into a clothing store and there's a stack of 20 different color T-shirts uh, ranging from, you know, you know, the spectrum of colors, ninety. of the time I'll walk up and I will grab the green one and I hold it up and I'll show my wife. I say, what do you think? I think it's brown. I think it's maybe going to be like a, like a gray or dark gray or something, but I don't see the green, but I'm drawn to it. So, so I don't understand why my brain draws me to green, but I don't know it's green. So when I'm retouching, I know that there are things that are happening that I'm drawn to that I don't know why. It's just, I, I make a decision based on something that's, these little gray cells in my brain are, are cranking away, making decisions, and I'm making decisions, but I don't know why. It just seems right for me. So, when I teach photography, and I teach even the retouching side, I say, uh, the best guide that you'll always have is your intuition. Your intuition will never lead you astray, and that is unless it leads you to jail, <laughs> you end up in jail. That might not be good. But but your intuition is your uniqueness. It's your soul. It's It's what makes you. So if you want to stand out from a crowd and you want to build a body of work that gets noticed, then you have to follow your intuition because your intuition sends you down the path that's going to fit you. But what happens is most of us, because we're taught, that we have to copy others. Someone already did this, therefore they were successful, and if I do it, I'll be successful too. Well, that's not true because usually what happens is the person was successful because they were the first to the market. They, it was them, it was their look, their brand, their you know their soul, and then you come along and try to match that. Well, number one, you never will. And I say people do my the jewel. They, the, if you call it the Joel Grimes grungy whatever you know look, the three light edgy look. There's people that do it better than me. But I was the first to do it, at least my look. yeah. And so therefore, I get the notice from the, the, the world, so to speak, because I was the first to do it. And so that's why if you stick with your intuition and you're not afraid for, to be criticized for what you're doing, then you will produce something that is so amazing that the world will take notice. But it's really scary to step out. And be yourself. It's not an easy thing. Now it's, it's a struggle of every artist is like putting themselves out there and saying, hey,
0: this is me and I'm special.
1: Yes. And so one of the best compliments that you can give me, and you may hate what I do, right? But if you come up to me and say, I hate what you do, but I saw a picture of yours in a magazine. I knew it was yours before I saw the credit. And then I say to myself, thank you. You just gave me the best compliment ever, even though you hate my work, because that's my goal is to stand out from the crowd and to be me, be unique, uh, not compromise. And therefore, I know that I'm not going to win over everyone and that some people legitimately could say you're doing it all wrong and they could be they could be correct, meaning that that I've broke the rules and, you know, somehow I'm not doing it what we call traditionally right or technically right. But because I'm an artist, I have the freedom to get away with certain things. So therefore, I'm a happy camper when I'm doing what I love. And I'm not a happy camper when I'm forced to go do something I don't love. So I guess the goal in life is to do what you love.
0: Yeah, true. And also not hunt for, like, I see a lot of people, they are hunting for every possible client they can get instead of trying to say no, because it might not be a good fit. That's right. So you have to be, yeah, it's never going to make you happy in the end.
1: Yep. Yeah. And I have situations where I get a phone call from an art director and they say, we have a project and blah, 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 blah. They tell me the whole parameters. And I look at it and I say, well, okay. First of all, you're asking me to do something that I don't do or I really don't do well and I won't enjoy doing it. But, you know, I know that I got to eat and I got to pay my bills, but there's a point in which I think the best so someone said, when do you, when did you know that you arrived as successful, you know, as a photographer? And I said, when I was, when I had the ability to say no.
0: That's true. But also, Younger generation, I see they get stuck in a market that is super low paid. Right. And when when they start too low, they they grow a little bit, but they will always be the cheap guy people go to.
1: Yep. Yeah. You have to learn how to position yourself in the marketplace and understand the value of what you do. That takes a lot. Uh, people get nervous. My kids are doing uh, video filmmaking in LA and they're running through the same thing, right? Because they're starting out and they go and do a job. And by the time they're done, the person who's delivering the pizza is making more money than they are. Yeah. So you have to be careful that you, you know, you have to make a profit and your time has to be paid for. And retouching is a very time consuming process. And I always say that I I don't make my money on the retouching side as a, as a personal as with my clients, I do all my own retouching. When I say all, th- there's been maybe one job or two jobs, you know, whatever, the last 10, 15, 12 years, whatever, that where the final uh, image that I delivered uh, was sent over and got tweaked somewhere else because they said, well, uh, the one was a snow scene where I just couldn't quite get the snowflakes to look correct falling you know, in the scene. And I got pretty close, but. They sent it over to a a finisher and and then they they that person was able to make it look really, really, really nice. So um, I understand my limitations. And I told them actually when they hired me and they told me there were six ads and they told me this snow ad. I said, I am not sure I can pull off the snow falling. And I said that from day one. So it wasn't like a surprise at the end that they were that they were like, whoa, Joel, you know, he he kind of let us down. So, um, but I gave it a shot and I got pretty close and I bet you if I practiced, you know, two weeks of build, making snow, I would finally get it, but I just didn't have time to, to, to build it out.
0: Yeah. At some point it's just like some people they're just specialized in just doing that and for them it's maybe just like 10 minutes of work. And so.
1: Yeah. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I would say in some cases a good retoucher could look at my work. Well, I know this would be, to be a fact. They can look at my work and say, whoa, I'd do that uh, a lot different and I could do it better. And that's probably true, especially some of my older images, because I'm obviously growing as a retoucher. But the one thing that I believe is important, my, my son, my oldest son's doing some car shooting in L.A. He's on the side. He's, he's He loves cars and and he's been practicing. And when we talked about it, I said... Because uh, he has a friend that's a high end retoucher, and he, and he was going to, he said to my son, I'll retouch all your stuff for you. I'll finish them off for you. And so I said to my son, though, I said, You will be a better photographer if you learn the retouching as best you can. Because when you start multi strobing cars and putting what I call plateography, which is putting multiple plates together uh, to make a final, then if you do know the retouching side, you are able to plan the whole shootout. It's a lot easier to plan the shootout when you have a retouching skill set. And if you think about it, if you're a young photographer and you are building a body of work, it's really important to create an image. Let's say you shoot it at the afternoon, you come back to your home or wherever you're at, your, your computer is, you download the images, you select some images, you, you start retouching, and by, you know, by, uh, by by the evening, you could have a finished image. You don't have to rely on someone else to drop it off and, you know, wait for them and then, you know, have emails exchanged back and forth on what to do. If you can learn a basic skill set of retouching, you can go and build your own body of work very quickly. And I always say I am not a master photoshopper or retoucher. I I have never said that and I teach Photoshop and I I get in front of uh, big groups of people and I teach them what I do but I am not a master of of the the Photoshop side of things and that's okay meaning that that's not where I hang my hat and I think that if we all sat down, we could teach somebody something, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we all are able to learn something new we never thought possible. Because Photoshop is such a big program.
0: that. that oh, it is. And yeah. uh, for most people, when they start out, they are super confused with all the possibilities they have at hand. Right. And then it's a matter of picking the right ones for you to start with and get something done at least. But what you said about uh, learning the retouching as a photographer is important. I see it the same way but also with retouchers learning about photography which can benefit them hugely because they also get a better understanding of how things work on a set what what can go wrong and make even su- suggestions to uh, their clients what could be improved in the workflow to save them money eventually
1: yeah i agree 100 percent. and here's an interesting statement that will maybe some people resonate with this. But as a general rule, the best photographers aren't trained photographers. They I mean, they didn't go to school for photography. And I, and I say that uh, because what happens is photographers uh, go to school. They learn a craft. They have their, their professors. They come out of school and they think they know everything. They think got, and they got They probably do know quite a bit. But they think they know everything and they have this very set way of creating something. And you come along, you say, why are you putting that light there? And they go, well, I'm a graduate of whatever, you know, fancy school.
0: Yeah, I learned this. I was taught to put it in like 45 angle and three steps to the right.
1: Yeah. And it's like, in a way, it's better to say, I don't know anything about lighting. I'm going to grab a light and see what happens and then start playing yeah explore
0: what what you're doing right the same i tend to think of every tool we're using also photoshop is to explore the possibilities at least for a while that you get a better fundamental understanding of how things work yep. and uh, it makes it easier to make decisions when you're confronted with an issue Yep. because we are all a problem in in your workflow or whatever it is
1: and the other thing I, I find really interesting is I'll, I will watch someone do a certain technique that does something. I'm like, well, that's kind of neat, but I have this other little part of that that I can apply in the middle of that technique that makes it 10 times better, right? Just one little thing I add to it, Yeah. Uh, whether it's a blending mode or, you know, it's, and, and then I go, and then all of a sudden it becomes this new technique and everyone says, how in the world did you come up with that? Well, I said I found this one person that did it this way, but I added one thing or two things to it, and then it made it even more complete. And I think that's how retouchers tend to learn, you know, these new techniques, because we're building on top of each other. It's like a pyramid of, you know, the 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 grand pyramids of in Egypt, right? You start with the foundation, you just start building and building and building. And so it's good to Always be open to look at what someone's doing, but find a better way to do what they're doing.
0: That's so true. For my observation, there are also two things. One is people are comfortable with just looking for a recipe to follow. Right. Uh, And as we discussed before, it's like if you're just copying what other people are doing or copying their steps from A to B, um, there's no... No. Exploration. There's no, you, as you said, you cannot explain why you're doing something. You're just following for whatever reason. Right. Because you think it will lead you down a path of success, hopefully. And the other thing, as you mentioned, is people coming from photography education and they consider themselves a photographer or retoucher, and all they see is the craftsmanship. Ship of what they're doing and completely neglecting if they're on their own that there is a business side of it and they have to explore that side as well and push themselves and it's not just the creation of things
1: right well it's we find the best photographers the best musicians the best actors the best writers you you, you fill in the blank the best ones in the world aren't aren't the ones usually that make the most money Because you have to wear a number of hats to uh, be a businessman, a marketer. You have to be, you know, you have to have your skill set. You have to be someone who stands firm in your artistic vision. You have to be able to negotiate. You know, there's a whole bunch of things you have to do to stay current and stay, you know, at the top of the game. And I always say photography is a real small part of what I do. You know, I'm marketing. I'm you write The business side, all those things take up probably more time than my photography or there's no shortcut to get around that. I can't just be a photographer. I wish I could. I mean, I wish I didn't have to do the business side. I didn't billing, uh, putting in estimates, you know, all that when it comes to a job. When I have to deal with a client, uh, if there's a crisis, how do I deal with a crisis? You know, all those things. So I wish life was as easy as just being whatever you are a musician or whatever and that's it you don't have to learn the business side or the marketing side but uh, unfortunately we wear a lot of hats these days
0: yeah true but speaking of that you have successfully branded yourself as someone doing the joel grimes look so how was it for you to get into this branding thing which is not easy i get also questions people for, uh, who are listening to the podcast they always know oh, how do I get to clients and uh, all that stuff and they yeah m- many people especially when they're small and starting out they have no idea what to do
1: yeah well on one hand it's very very simple on the other hand it takes a lot of work so let's look at it from this perspective I always use a given example let's say I live out in California I don't but let's say I do And i have access to lots of surfers the surf culture there's a you know the sport of surfing there's the culture of surfing so i like surfing let's say i like surfing i want to get known and i want to make a living with being a surf photographer well the first thing you have to do is go out and photograph the culture the surfing every free minute you have and you have to photograph surfers more than 99.9% 99.9% of all other photographers on the planet. Because I may go up and do a, a picture of a surf, let's say a California surfer, and maybe it's for a client, I shoot it, but I don't know the culture. And I'm not really interested in the surf culture. But I can do a portrait of a surfer, but I'm not really the surfing guy. The guy to, that, that you would go to if you say, who is the number one surfer photographer out there? Well that person is someone who shoots it every free minute they have. They're out shooting the surfing culture, surfing the surfing action. They're maybe in the water, they're maybe strobing portraits on the on the shore. They're hanging out with the surfers. They understand the the language. You know, if there's you know different kinds of surfboards, what kind of wax you put on a surfboard. They know the surfing culture. And so as you absorb yourself in the surfing culture and you start to build a body of work that represents your vision as an artist, the what you want, the end result, you're building maybe on the, the foundation of other photographers that have gone before you. And next thing you know, you've got this incredible body of work that starts to come together. Uh, if you're doing it right, you're creating images that people weren't creating five years ago or two years ago, you're doing something that's you're taking maybe a a, a strobe that's waterproof. You're going out into the surf. You have a strobe and you're now strobing surfers coming through the waves and you're doing something that no other photographer has ever done before you. You're taking the current tools because maybe until a year ago, they didn't have a waterproof strobe that would allow you to surf or, you know, photograph surfers in action on the water. So you're taking all this new technology, this new vision, this new energy and applying it to one subject matter and you do it better and more than 99% of all other photographers on the planet. You now become the surfing expert. And then you go and you start submitting your work to uh, surfing magazines, which don't pay any money by the way. You don't make any money on magazines, but you start getting your work out there. And pretty soon, You have enough where you go in and you walk into an ad agency that does, and they happen to be uh, one of their clients, is the wetsuit, you know, that makes wetsuits or makes surfboards or make whatever. And then now you are shooting the ads for these, you know, big campaigns, $100,000 campaigns, because you became the expert in one niche. Now, with time, you can take and maybe apply and become an expert in something else too. Maybe you do surfing, you do NASCAR racing. So you do maybe two different genres that you can become pretty good at. But you can't go and do 10 things. You can't be an expert at 10 different things. You have to concentrate your effort toward one topic and you become so good and so innovative that you become the brand. And so... It's not that hard on one hand in that it doesn't take a genius to figure out some basic new techniques to go photograph a surfer out on the waves. It doesn't take that much.
0: No, but it's also the um, the dedication you have to put on. Like, That's right. Sticking to that example of yours, um, that person has to live the surfing lifestyle as well, and it has to dedicate their life to what they're doing.
1: Right. So really... When I say this, so I did before digital, I shot a four by five camera, a view camera. And I shot a Type 55 Polaroid positive negative film. And so you would process it in daylight. Once you squeezed it through the, the little processor, the chemical packet would burst and you would squeeze across the negative. And then you would stick it in a big tray and you'd wash it as sodium sulfite, wash it. And then you'd hang it and dry it. And then you scan it. I love that look. I love that technique. This is back in the uh, 90s, 1990s and into just about 2001 that I did that. And I shot four by five portraits all around the world. And I ended up getting huge ad campaigns with that look. So I shot it every free minute I have. Portraits with a big view camera, which nobody was doing. Not, I say nobody. Very few people were doing it at the time. And... I became in Denver, I was in Denver at the time, and, and Denver, Colorado, and I people come up and go, are you the guy that photographs the black and white portraits with a view camera? I go, yep, that's me. And so my name got out there with, with this, you know, this discipline of shooting this big camera with portraits. Very, very difficult to keep it in focus and, you know, all the challenges that I had with a 4x5 camera. Yeah. Um, but I shot almost, I think it was about 7,000 sheets of that. I had to process every single one of those myself. It was about a seven, eight-year run. It it launched me on a national level. So so I was working in Denver, shooting for clients and ad agencies. But when I started doing that look, it literally launched me onto the national scene. That was the first time I realized the value of branding. And so... When digital came along and I had to reinvent myself, I knew exactly what I needed to do. And so that's why you know who I am today is because I I piggybacked off of that experience onto the digital experience. And of course, I know now that I have to continue to brand with new stuff, too. I can't just do the old stuff I've been doing for for, uh, eight years, 10 years. That stuff's starting to look old now. So I have to continue to reinvent myself and to brand myself.
0: Yeah. What what I see here is like mostly comes down to getting really specialized and then you can potentially achieve something greater than compared to when you can do a little bit of everything. Yep. And I see the same with retouching. People just yep. go out and want to do everything. They want to do composites, they want to do beauty retouching they want to do fashion they want to do whatever it is um advertising campaigns product packaging everything and if if you're trying to do that it's the same as a photographer that has a homepage with families babies nudes and
1: yep all that stuff yeah and here's one side note that i talk about a lot when it comes to not only the photography Capture side, but the retouching captures or the retouching side. And that is this we all have attention span. If you get in a car, some people they drive an hour and they go, That's as far as I'll go. I'm bored. I don't, I get out of the car, stretch my legs, right? And some people can sit for 10 hours and never move, right? They're just, they're just perfectly content sitting, you know? And when it comes to creating pictures, Some of us will take a backpack, pile our cameras, a strobe, tripod, a light stand, and we'll hike out into the desert to get this beautiful portrait. And so I talk a lot about from an inspiration perspective. And that is if you want to be a musician and you want to, you know, sing and play your guitar in front of a large group of people and, you know, make a living at it, um, you have to set out on a goal that you practice, don't give up, keep working, 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 don't give up. And eventually you get there, right? There's a few that get there, the few that make it to the top. The reason why there's few at the top is that the bulk of people quit. And so they get frustrated, they get hurt, they get crushed, they get beat down, uh, you know, all these things. And for me, you have to have a mindset, at least I did, There was no plan B, meaning that I wanted to be a photographer and it wasn't like, well, if it doesn't work out in two years, I'll go do something else. It was, I want to be a photographer. That's it. I'm doing it. (laughs) There's no plan B. And I think what happens is people just, you know, they get frustrated a little bit. Maybe they get some bad clients or something. But anyways, they quit. I just see people quitting all the time. That's why there's a few at the top. I, I think a lot of people ask me, you know, what is, what is my success? How did I get to where I'm at? And I say, it's because I never quit. And so the, my encouragement to people is you don't have to be the smartest person. You don't have to be the creative genius. You don't have to be all these things. But you have to, what you do have to have is a hard work ethic and you never quit. So that's my, I guess you would say, formula for success. That's super great advice. Usually
0: that would be an ideal thing to wrap up. What I have another question here is like being super engaged and working hard. How do you balance that with, yeah, life? So how do you find that work-life balance here to not keep yourself burning out or overwork yourself?
1: Well, my wife will tell you that I probably work too hard. I mean, I overwork. I think when you do what you love, it's not as much work. I enjoy it. There's parts of it I really, really love. And so I'm I'm able to put in longer hours maybe because of that. But I do think that when you're, you know, I have four boys now and they're all adults. And I look, you know, at them and I kind of give them advice. But I also realized, too, that there was times when I was gone because I traveled so much. And I wasn't there for my kids when I should have been. I also realize now that no photograph is more important than your children. So there's things that I had probably should have balanced better in the early days because I worked so hard at chasing my dream. So I think you do have to have a balance. And I think I maybe erred on the side of working too hard. I'm 61 years old now. So I look back and I think, well maybe i shouldn't have i should have gone camping with my kids more i should have taken them to the park and played with them more. you know those kind of things i have i have those kind of regrets
0: yeah but i think that's just natural somehow as a parent yeah i think we all do i mean i'm much younger but most people they struggle with finding a way to keep themselves motivated over years in terms of either focusing only on their work and then losing interest or burning out and stuff like this. So many people struggle with, like, especially uh, people who are starting, I would say, they are just putting it maybe all in there and not pacing themselves well. So they are trying to sprint instead of having a a look at how to balance their pace with their needs in terms of their lives.
1: Well, the other thing, too, is if you are a good business person, hopefully you're being, you're charging for what your your time is worth. We talked about that briefly. We don't all have to be multimillionaires, but we do have to make a living and we have to make sure that our, the time that we're spending for a client, we're getting paid for. And I think there's somebody, I heard someone speak recently about this whole concept. And that is that when a client comes and says, Uh, We need you to be out in the field for a week. And you look at that and you say, that job is going to steal my time away from my family. And you better be paid for it. So when you put a bid in, you say, for you to steal my time away from my family, you'd be able to pay me very well. I think that you have to make sure that you are a good business person. And then you can take a week off or two weeks off, spend it with your family and enjoy life. But if you don't get paid for it, then you're just, you're basically spinning your wheels. You're throwing your time toward no profit coming back. Oh yeah. And that's not good.
0: Yeah. I see that with many people, they just see how many clients they can work with neglecting to calculate their rate in terms of, They need time to market themselves. They need time to run their business in terms of, um, yeah, doing their builds and and all that stuff. And they need time to, as a photographer, to test and to explore and as a retoucher to learn about techniques and, yeah, keep yourself fresh there. And that should reflect in your rates as well. Many people are just not, maybe not charging enough for that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So how, how would you, in terms of someone starting out, could you give just one or what would be your best advice to, to those people?
1: Well, if you're a retoucher, and that's what you want to do, I would piggyback onto a photographer or a set of photographers that don't want to retouch and you become the go-to person for that group or that photographer so you are able to build a mutual portfolio together the photographer gets amazing retouching the retoucher gets amazing photography and you build that relationship and that together you enter the marketplace working side by side and maybe like i said you get a couple a couple photographers and so That way you can be consistent uh, with the photographer's vision and your vision that comes together as collaboration. Instead of just saying, I'm available, any photographer that wants to come along, I'll retouch for or any client. I would say stick with finding a really talented photographer that does not want to retouch that you can partner with and mutually uh, build a career together, or at least for a certain amount of time.
0: Yeah, that's super great advice. I think we talked about so many things like where you got from the business side and all that stuff. And I do not want to keep you forever here. So with all the advice you've given, I have to thank you for taking the time and talking to us here for the podcast.
1: Well, uh, it's my pleasure. And and like I said, I'm always one to encourage and inspire others to live their dreams. So that's part of my personality or whatever, is to prod people, move them forward toward their dreams. And there's a lot of photographers, and of course, uh, you probably were a baby when I was starting out, but in the 80s and 90s, photographers did not share information. And it was very closed. And then of course, now with the digital, the YouTube, the internet and all that, we've all become uh, more open, but I've always been open always had no secrets. I've always shared everything I know because I truly love to see other people succeed. If I, in this podcast or anytime I'm in front of a group of photographers or retouchers or whatever, I love to encourage people. And so um, I hope that this conversation does that. And that's why I'm here.
0: I definitely think it does. And it's super inspirational hearing you talk. But now where can people go? What What do you have going on? So you mentioned in the beginning, you have your workshop going on and you have the website joelgrimesworkshops.com where people can
1: learn more about the uh, future. Yeah, that's my blog. And so joelgrimes.com is my official website. joelgrimesworkshops.com is my blog. And then, you know, I have Joel Grimes Academy and a bunch of stuff there too. And I try to keep up on, you know, where I'm speaking so people can follow me if they have that. But, you know, Instagram, all those things are there. You know, I'm out there. The social media part is always hard to keep up on. But I try to make posts and and keep people abreast as much as possible on what I'm doing. Well, they say the busy photographers uh, usually are not that active
0: on social media.
1: (laughs) I I hate it. My wife does it for me, but I hate social media. But yeah, she, she, she keeps it pretty good. But yeah, we will
0: put the um, all the links to the websites and the social media in the show notes so people can find you. The workshop is definitely going to be over, uh, the, the one workshop where you live, when this episode is going to air. As you said, you're speaking on a lot of ev- events, WPPI. And what's next for you there? So do you have anything in um,
1: mind? Well, I have another workshop in April, but then I have... Um It's all filled up now, but Texas School, there's a big event there. Then Photoshop World, the one I'll I'll be at is in August in Las Vegas. So I'll be at that one speaking, doing a pre-con a day workshop prior to the official launch. Uh, You know, they call it a pre-con. But like I said, I've been averaging 45 events a year, speaking somewhere across America. You know, and I've done stuff in Europe too. We did a, a six country tour in europe about a year and a half ago um so who knows if i'll get a chance to go back like i said always love talking to uh, photographers and people that have a dream uh, and they want to get there so it's fun
0: yeah again thanks for sticking around um again thanks for sharing all of that knowledge and yeah we put everything in the show notes and again have to thank you for spending the time was a pleasure
1: yeah daniel thank you too i appreciate this Okay, that's been
0: it. Episode number 29 is a wrap. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and could take something valuable from it. Please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast if you liked it. Also follow us on social media at Boutique Retouching. Visit BoutiqueRetouching.com. We have tons of information, tons of podcasts out there. And I really hope you have a great start into 2020 and I talk to you in the next episode.